I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew, the third chapter, and we'll be reading there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at several chapters in Matthew tonight as we talk about John the Baptist and the kingdom of God. But before I do that, can I just say a word um, about what we have just done? You and I have an absolute awesome privilege to worship Jesus Christ when we gather. And I'm so thankful to be part of a church that loves to worship Him. And I want to encourage us to keep on doing that. Uh, He's certainly worthy of that, but when we worship Him, it also puts us exactly where you and I need to be in relationship to Him. And you know, sometimes we may sing a song that you just love, and you're thinking, wow, I love singing that song. But worship is more than singing a favorite song, isn't it? Worship is directing that song and your heart and your mind to the Lord Jesus so that He's the audience, so He's receiving what you're saying. as something coming from you. And how many churches have been shredded over preferences concerning song choices? And I'm thankful that we don't have that issue here. If we do, please don't tell me. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> but, but we don't ever want to fall into that. Uh, traveling around for 10 years, I promise you, we have a lot of different kinds of churches in Arkansas. And the size is not just the difference from one church to another, but also the way that church does business, the way they relate to one another, the way they, they understand what it means to be a Christian and a church member varies widely from church to church. And how many churches have been, have been, um, have defined themselves in terms of their song choices? And I'm telling you, that is silly, because it doesn't matter. As I traveled, I I discovered it really didn't matter. Now, there were places I found it difficult to worship, but only because of the hostility and coldness in the room. It wasn't about what we were singing. Uh, But I found that I could enter into worship with any group of brothers and sisters that were choosing to worship Him. And so I have been in places where they played hill instruments, uh, Ozark instruments, bluegrass instruments before the worship service for 30 minutes just for something to do. And I watched people close their eyes and raise their hands and enter into worship as they played those bluegrass instruments. And I remember the first time I saw that, it was a tent revival, one of the first revival meetings I preached when I came to the state. And I remember just sort of standing back. I had left this a large church in Tennessee. It was a contemporary, humper-thumper contemporary, all the things you probably don't like if you don't like contemporary, but it was one of those kind of churches. And, and two weeks later, I'm in a tent revival, sawdust on the floor, and people are playing bluegrass music before the service starts. And I'm going, wow. Wow. But I wasn't going, wow, because of the change in culture. I was going, wow, because I was watching people worship the Lord Jesus with all their heart. And that blessed me. And you have blessed me tonight by worshiping my Savior and my Lord. 
Tonight we have a privilege of continuing our study of the kingdom of God. And I want us to spend, I hope, about 15 minutes or so uh, in our study. And then we'll have our response time. And I, I pray that you will take or be attentive to what God is saying to you through the study. And that during that response time, that in some way you will speak to the Lord or respond to the Lord based on what he has said to you. There's no more important subject for you and I in this day and time than thinking about the kingdom of God. And I really wrestled this week with where to begin. I mean, right up to this weekend, I'm thinking, Lord, where do I start? There's so very much for us to consider. And, and then it was obvious. I need to start with John the Baptist. And so there's no handout tonight. I just sort of want to tell his story and then leave you with some things to think about uh, at the end that I believe will get us pointed in the right direction as we think about the kingdom of God. By way of review, we have learned already that the kingdom of God primarily is not a reference to the church. The church preaches the kingdom of God, or should. The church is part of demonstrating the kingdom of God, but the church is not the kingdom of God. We are subjects of the kingdom. We are the community of the kingdom, but we are not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God refers to an attribute of God himself, and it is that ruling power or capacity to act or express his rule that is the kingdom of God. And we've seen that previously in our studies. And then as we went through the Old Testament, we saw that the first reference to the ruling power expressed by Almighty God, we saw in the Exodus story in uh, Exodus um, I think it was 15. And on the banks of the Jordan, as they have been delivered by Almighty God, who has entered into human history and has collided with the powers that were oppressing the people of God, Exodus 12, 12, 12 refers to the gods of Egypt, and God was judging the gods of Egypt, the demon deities that were oppressing the people of God. And he does battle with them, and it's manifested in the conflict with Pharaoh and they go through the Red Sea, it parts, they go on the other side, and uh, for whatever scholars will try to do to explain away the Red Sea, the waters came back and covered the armies and all those guys drowned. So whatever it was, it was deep enough to drown, a whole army. And on the banks of, of the Jordan, not the Jordan, on the banks of the Red Sea, the people are dancing and singing a song, and in the midst of that, we saw it, they said, our God reigns. That's our God. He's the one in charge. He really can do stuff. He has power. He's the one who has created the universe, and he's the one who is Lord of lords, Lord over everything that would try to be Lord over me. And we saw that when we come to the time of the kings, David and Solomon, that he showed the people what it looked like when he ruled through an anointed adopted king, and it was a picture of what was coming. But for a period of time, the people of Judah and Israel experienced what it was like to be under the rule of God. Every enemy that the nation had was subdued. The reach and the influence of the nation was extended to its furthest extent geographically. All of the people prospered. 
They never had a bad crop. Everything was going well. And the nations of the world at that period of time were coming to David and Solomon, particularly Solomon, for wisdom and for counsel. And it was a picture of the shalom, the peace that will rule when God comes and he puts everything that's broken, everything that's sinful, everything that's wrong, everything that's sick, he puts it all away and restores life the way he intended it to originally be lived. We go to the prophets and they, they are looking back at what happened, but the, now they are looking forward to a kingdom that is coming. And this is going to be the full, complete, and final expression of the rule of God. And it divides all of time in the two parts. This present age, which is evil and broken and sick and diseased, and there's lots of suffering and and all kinds of difficulty associated with this present evil age, and then there's the age to come. And they were announcing the age to come. And then there's this period of about 400 years when the last prophet, when the ink dried on his page, where there is no revelation. And then we come to John the Baptist. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, literally the kingdom of the heavens, is at hand. And when he said that, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, uh, the kingdom of the heavens, or kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, are synonymous. They, they mean the same thing. And typically, the Jewish way of describing the rule of God was, was in that realm that I cannot see and that I cannot understand or comprehend, and it's the heavens. And so the kingdom of the heavens is where God's rule is perfectly expressed. The Greeks had no concept of space in that way, and so the, when they're addressing non-Jewish people, typically they use the reference kingdom of God. And so he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've talked about that before. I used the analogy that if you were a guest and you were coming in, you said, Pastor, I need to find the nursery. I need to park my little one for a while. And so I said, follow me. And I walk you down to the nursery. And we go through the, uh, the lobby and we go through the gym. And I take you outside one building. I take you inside another building. And I take you to where the nursery is. And I said, behold, the nursery is at hand. <laughs> And that's what he's saying. He's saying the kingdom of God is right here. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's near. It's here. It's about to happen. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Now you'll remember that John the Baptist uh, is very much a part of the Christmas story. You remember how? It was through what? Through his parents. Uh, his, his daddy was a priest, and his mom, Elizabeth, was a cousin to, to Mary, and that made he and Jesus cousins as well. And they have not had a child, and they want a child. And this angel appears to Zachariah to tell him he's going to have a child. And you'll remember the story. It happens. He doesn't believe it. And the angel touches him in such a way they can't speak until the time that 
John is actually born. And when he does, he, he begins to a song. And the neat thing about Christmas is all these people, as Jesus is coming into the world, are creating these songs. And in Luke 1, verse 76, this is not on the screen, he, in the midst of his song, he says this, Zechariah, John's daddy, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And then in verse 80 of Luke 1, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his manifestation to Israel. So here's this, this man, and from birth, from birth, he has a mission and an assignment from God. The family prophecy told of his mission, and he, is, he has got the part. I mean, he's wearing camel-haired garments. I mean, he, he looks like a wild prophet from the desert. And, and he's living in that desert for several years. And then, in Luke chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, just listen. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John. In other words, there was a point in time where nothing particularly was happening. He was living in the desert. He knew he had this assignment. But then there was a particular point in time where the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he went to all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So God is about to do something. Here's this wild man, this prophet in the desert, and now the word of God comes. He knows what he's to do, he knows what he is to say, and he is doing it, and he is saying it. It caused a huge stir in the nation. Now, if you're following along in Matthew 3, I'm at verse 5 now. Then Jerusalem all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So to a people who are chafing under the oppressive rule of a Roman government, to a people who were yearning for the coming of God's kingdom as they had learned about it for generations by reading the prophets, who felt that God had become silent, suddenly, there appeared a new prophet, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Continuing in verse 7 of Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, that's transliterated, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which was do does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than you, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is baptizing with water, but he's saying that one is coming. He's, a, he's announcing the coming of the king. One is coming who's going to bring two other baptisms. One is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, who told us, does anybody remember, who told us among the prophets that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit associated with the coming of the king? Does anybody remember one of the prophets or two or three? Anybody? Isaiah was one. 
I'm going to pour out my spirit. He talks about that. Ezekiel is another. Uh, Joel, before the coming of, of the Lord, the day of the Lord, he said that he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so he's right in the sink, right in the same channel as the Old Testament prophets. He also announced that this same Messiah would bring a baptism of fire. And he uses the word picture of a threshing floor where the chaff, the part that's not usable, is simply gathered up and burned. And he makes the point so that you know that this is not just a word picture. He says it's with unquenchable fire. And so the coming one that John is announcing is bringing a division in the humanity in the two groups. Those who are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and those who are going to be baptized with fire. And, he's, and he says this in the context of talking to Pharisees and Sadducees who were completely missing what was going on. And he says the axe is already laid at the root. The unfruitful fruit tree is going to be cut down and burned. And so everything he's saying is leaving the people who are hearing him with the same expectation that the Old Testament prophets left with everybody. And that is this, that when the kingdom comes, it is coming suddenly, it is coming completely all at once, it is coming catastrophically. He's going to destroy the enemies, there'll be a baptism of fire, and then this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, now John recognized that Jesus was the coming one. You remember his baptism in John 1, verses 32 to 34. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. This is his testimony. I did not know him. Now, he knew it was his cousin, but he didn't know that he was the Messiah. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so that was John the Baptist's experience at the baptism of Jesus. He says, I, I thought he was just my cousin. <laughs> but he's the one. He's the one. He's the coming one that's going to baptize with fire and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, after Jesus' baptism, what happened to him next? Does anybody remember? Anybody remember what happened to Jesus after he was baptized? Boy, I can't understand a word you're saying. <laughs> he was tempted. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay, good. He was tempted. He went to this period of temptation. The Holy Spirit, right after his baptism, led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. And after the experience of being tempted by the devil, we come to Matthew 4, verse 17. And you may want to turn there. We're still, I'm keeping you in Matthew. Matthew 4, verse 17. And what did we see? From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you heard that sermon before? Who was preaching it before Jesus? John the Baptist. That's exactly what you read earlier in chapter 3. John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, after his baptism, is preaching the very same message. But there's a difference. As you scan those verses, verses 18 to 22 that follow, what you see is that he's now calling men to follow him. He calls Andrew and Peter and James and John 
And that was different. John the Baptist had disciples, but Jesus is going about something different. He's, he's gathering a group, and as we've been studying on Thursday morning in our men's Bible study, he's gathering a group together, and he's going to reproduce in them his own ministry so that they can go and do what he has been doing and preach what he has been preaching and have the same kind of ministry impact that he's been having. And John the Baptist didn't do that, so that's very different. But here's where the real difference comes in Matthew 4, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people. Now, you know that would happen, don't you? If you knew that there was somebody you could drive up to and drop off that sick relative and they would be healed, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you do that? In a heartbeat you would do that. And that's what's happening. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. I want you to see, just by while we're here, this is just an aside, the two words, demon-possessed and epileptic, side by side. There it is. The word there for epileptics refers to someone who has seizures, and as a consequence of those seizures, they act differently than the rest of us. Uh, another way of translating that word almost would be moonstruck. They're just a little different from the rest of us. And they're epileptics. It's right beside um, demon-possessed. And what I want you just to notice for that, for just a moment, because this will be more significant in, in future studies, but one is a medical condition. The other is a spiritual condition. Sometimes you will hear skeptics or people who deny uh, supernatural things in Scripture. They'll say, oh, not everyone had a demon. And, and they didn't have a way of comprehending a medical diagnosis or making a distinction. And so when Jesus was healing and he was casting out demons and so forth, um, he, was, he was perhaps performing physical healing. But this business of demonization um, is just something that was part of their superstition and part of the, the, the mentality that was all caught up in magic and evil spirits and that sort of thing. I just want you to see that 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit inspired this summary statement by Matthew to be written down, and he could distinguish the difference between a physical or an organic problem and one that was purely a spiritual one. This was completely different than what John had preached was going to happen. This is the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same gospel, the kingdom, but a very different ministry. Healing, miracles, demon expulsions. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. Now, I said all that to say this. It is through John the Baptist that we begin to see something 
that no other Old Testament prophet ever saw. Something very different, something new. And he saw it. And, and it was so remarkable that he saw it that it's recorded in Scripture. If you will, if you're still in Matthew, go to Matthew 11 and verse 2. John's been sitting in prison now for seven chapters. Uh, he's, he's arrested. In Matthew 11, verse 2, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, some scholars read that and suggest that John the Baptist was at some low point of discouragement, and he just needed encouragement from Jesus that everything was on course and that he was not suffering there in prison for no reason. I don't buy that for a moment. I'm sure that's a possibility, but I don't believe that's what's happening here. Notice that in, in verse 2 it says, when John heard, what did he hear about? What Jesus was doing, the works of Jesus. He wasn't down. He's trying to figure something out. The point is that these were not the deeds that John expected. There was a baptism neither of spirit or of fire. The kingdom had not come as he understood it. The world remained as before, and Jesus was doing preaching and teaching and healing sick people. This was not what John expected. He never questioned his call to ministry. He never questioned his message. He only questioned whether Jesus was indeed the one who was bringing the kingdom of God. So in response, Jesus ties his ministry to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. That's what Jesus is referring to. He says, he's saying to him, John, you know Isaiah 35. You know the prophecies concerning the Messiah. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Everything's just fine, John. Everything's okay. But there's a disconnect. The prophets in the Old Testament never talked about anything like this. Well, they did. But that's not the part everybody remembers. What everybody remembers was, he's going to come, he's going to whoop up on the Romans, <laughs> we're going to have the best thing that's ever happened when God comes and sits on his throne. And that's not what was happening. So what did John discover that every believer needs to know? I want to read four statements as we close. What did John discover that every believer needs to know? First, the kingdom of God contains both expected and unexpected elements. And we're going to draw this out, and it's probably seen nowhere more clearly than in the parables in Matthew 13. And I don't know what you think those parables are about, but Jesus is teaching his followers about the expected and unexpected aspects of the kingdom. Secondly, the catastrophic and decisive elements have not yet arrived. You say, well, duh. Well, that's easy for you and me 2,000 years later 
to understand that we're still waiting on the second coming of Jesus. We understand that. But they didn't understand that then. They're expecting something far more spectacular. Thirdly, the elements of God's kingly rule and power have already arrived in the ministry of Jesus. And so there's a not yet part of the kingdom of God, the catastrophic and decisive entry of the kingdom. And then there's an already. The already is that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, through his son, who was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, he is showing up. He is making himself known. He is demonstrating, not just preaching that God is in charge. He is demonstrating that God is in charge and that he rules. And then finally, the kingdom of God arrived with Jesus and is present now. And where God is present, all of God is present. So what does that mean to you and me? Does it mean that you and I are supposed to go to our grave having simply done our best? Is it possible? And can we imagine that God might use us the way he used his own followers in the pages of the New Testament? Is it possible that we could easily fall into the same mistake of thinking that everything gets better at the second coming, but nothing gets better until then? I don't know what you're experiencing, who you are praying for, what your needs are, but can I encourage you to open your heart wide and let the king enter into your needs. Every time Jesus got ready to do something, before he did it, he would say, repent for the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And then he would say, not only Am I telling you that God is present? Let me show you. Let me show you. And in whatever way that God was leading him and speaking to him at that moment, because we know that Jesus, not for a moment, ever acted independently of the Father. He would lean on the Father, follow his direction and his guidance, and God would use him to do something that could only be explained as the hand of God. And that was it. Tonight, as we respond to him, we're going to stand and sing. And um, we got just one song. Uh, the altar will be open if you need to pray for yourself or someone dear to you. Pastors will be here at the front. We're here to pray with you also. But I wonder if there's an area of your life you have been carrying and carrying it and carrying it and carrying it. And tonight, the King of Kings says, would you please... Give it to me. Would you let him come in to your needs? He is the king. The kingdom of God is at hand. How will you respond to him? If you need Christ tonight, if you need to know him as your Lord and Savior, 
we would be delighted to share with you how a person comes to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, how a person's sins can be forgiven and their life changed. And if that's your heart cry, we invite you to come. Talk to one of our pastors. And they'll share scripture with you about how a person comes to know Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you. Thank you for this precious church family and the many ways that you have shown yourself strong here over the years. But Father, I pray that you would enable us to take our eyes off the past and increasingly place our eyes on you. Not even put our eyes on the future, just put our eyes on you. And look to you for what you're wanting to do right now in this moment. Father, we know the only time we can trust you is right now. The only time that, that we can experience the kingdom of God is right now in this moment. And Father, for that person who is hurting, who desperately needs to see your hand at work in their lives, I pray, Almighty God, you would show yourself that you would move mightily in their circumstances, in their heart, and in their life. Father, we live in a world that is oppressive and wants to kill every vestige of faith in our soul. But we know that you have overcome the world and that you are the king. And we welcome you here, almighty God. We welcome you here and we ask you to come. And would you minister, speak to and show yourself to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.